The Crime Tree is a true crime podcast detailing the crimes and events committed against others. Listener discretion is advised. The city of Tyler is located in northeast Texas, approximately 160 kilometers from Dallas, and is the largest city within Smith County. In 1990, it had a population of around 75,000, and bank robberies were an uncommon event. But in 1994, the United Heritage Credit Union on South Broadway Avenue was hit twice within several months. Both times, two men wearing masks and carrying handguns entered and rushed the tellers, demanding cash. The first robbery on July 21st netted the assailants approximately $8,000, and as they fled, a witness was able to jot down a partial plate number, which the Texas Department of Motor Vehicles found over 400 possible matches for. Three months later, while still narrowing down the list of potential vehicles, the credit union was targeted once again. This time, thanks to the increased security, the two men were caught on security camera. Later that night, when the news aired the footage during their broadcast, a local police officer recognized one of the men as his next door neighbor, Christopher Wells and the other as Chris's friend, Patrick Horn. Despite hiding their faces, one of the men had on a distinctive plaid jacket with a solid gray hood, a jacket matching the one the officer had seen his neighbor wearing just hours earlier. In fact, the clothing that both men were wearing in the robbery footage matched the outfits of both Chris and Patrick on that same day. Pat and Chris were quickly apprehended and brought in for questioning. And while Patrick remained tight-lipped, Chris began to talk quickly confessing to both robberies, naming Patrick as the mastermind and also implicating another man, Gene Lindsay, as their lookout and getaway driver. What police didn't expect was that as a result of Gene Lindsay's arrest, they were about to set in motion the events that would lead to solving not only the bank robberies, but also the murder of 80-year-old J.C. Lavassa a month earlier and the disappearance in 1991 of 8-year-old Chad Choice. You are listening to The Crime Tree. I'm your host, Jasmine, and this is the story of J.C. Lavassa and Chad Choice. Born Ernest Chadwick Choice on April 26, 1983, Chad was the youngest of four children to parents John and Karen. Chad was described as being cheeky and mischievous, but still very much a mummy's boy who never ventured far from his family home. His older siblings, Angela, Terence and Kimberly, doted on their little brother, and he often attended church and church functions with his devotely religious mum. On the morning of Sunday the 13th of October 1991, however, was different, and Karen decided to let Chad and his siblings sleep in, instead of waking them for church. It was Karen's 41st birthday, and she planned to stay back after church that morning to catch up with her friends from the congregation. But just before service began, it was announced that there was an urgent phone call for Karen. On the other end was her husband, John, asking if Chad had gone with her as he was not in his bed and was nowhere to be found. Quickly excusing herself, a panicked Karen hurried home and didn't hesitate in contacting the police. After a brief search of the neighbourhood and of the choice house, detectives were quick to determine that Chad was a possible runaway. There was no sign of a forced entry, no struggle, 
and nothing to indicate that Chad hadn't left on his own accord. The only thing missing from the house other than Chad was a set of house keys that his sister had left by the back door the previous day. The theory that Chad had simply left by himself was vehemently denied by his family. He was only eight years old and the furthest he'd travelled on his own was to his neighbour's house to play with a friend. Two days later, the direction of the investigation changed when a typed ransom note was left on the front door of the family business, a local funeral home run by Karen's brother, Greg Sterling. The note, addressed to Greg, demanded $10,000 to be left at the Greyhound bus station. It read, quote, If you want your boy alive, you'll do exactly what I say. He's okay now, but one mistake and he'll be a memory. P.S. If we don't show, that means we heard something from our inside contact. It could even be your own family. Be careful. End quote. It quickly became clear that Chad Choice was not a runaway and the FBI joined the investigation. A look into Chad's family members gave police their first suspect, his uncle Greg Sterling, who the ransom note was addressed to. Investigators discovered that Greg was a regular drug user who at the time had a substantial debt with local dealers. The FBI began to theorise that Greg and his drug debt had something to do with Chad's kidnapping and ransom, and due to the lack of forced entry at the Choice House, they speculated that Greg was using Chad to extort money from his own family to repay his debts. Denying any involvement and in an attempt to clear his name, Greg provided the briefcase full of cash to be used for the ransom drop at the bus station. The briefcase was left at the designated spot, but it was never collected. Still thinking that this was an inside job, Chad's family were asked to undergo polygraph examinations, which cleared everyone except for Greg. But authorities had nothing to go on, and forensic testing of the note yielded no further clues. The day following the first anniversary of Chad's disappearance, his mother Karen found a typed note tucked under the windscreen wiper of her car. It implied that Chad was still alive, saying that he missed them all a lot. It instructed Karen that she had one more chance of getting her son back, this time at a cost of $6,000, which was needed to be ready when the kidnappers contacted her back with instructions for the drop. Once again, the Choice family were propelled into the chaotic nightmare of emotional highs and crushing lows, as they waited for the kidnappers to make contact once again. Eventually, though, they had to come to terms with the fact that that was not going to happen. This note was also sent to forensics, but once again, no biological evidence or fingerprints could be found. As another year slowly passed, then another, Karen busied herself with the church and set up Chad House, a not-for-profit organisation offering help, support and resources for women in need of assistance, for whatever the reason, from family violence, drug addiction to homelessness. The investigation into Chad's case went cold until Patrick Horn, Christopher Wells and Jean Lindsay were all arrested in connection with the two credit union robberies in 2004. As Jean is being interviewed, he began talking about an elderly man who had been shot and killed by the other two men just weeks earlier in nearby Dogwood City. J.C. Lavasser was born James Clark Lavasser on June 22, 1914, and was raised in the tiny Texan town of Berryville, located in Henderson County. J.C. lived a simple and happy life. He married his childhood sweetheart, Annie, 
and together they had a daughter, Linda. After spending many years living and working in Oklahoma, JC and Annie returned in 1982 to the East Texas area they'd grown up in to begin their retirement years. JC had a passion for gardening and soon had an overabundance of homegrown fruit and vegetables that was more than what his family, friends and neighbours could eat. JC was soon a regular fixture on the outskirts of Dogwood City along Texas Highway 155 where he'd park his trusty old pickup and set up his roadside produce stand. For 10 years, his fruit and vegetables found their way into the fruit bowls and onto the dinner plates of hundreds of local residences. On October 5, 1994, at the age of 80, JC was still showing no signs of slowing down. It was a mild Wednesday morning and he loaded up his truck eager to begin his day along Highway 155. Throughout the morning, many of JC's regular customers stopped for their weekly supply of produce and for a chat with the cheery and laid-back elderly man. But when a customer pulled up that afternoon, they quickly realised that something was not right. JC's stand was unattended and his truck gone. What was left of his fresh fruit and vegetables was still there and some money had been placed under a nearby rock, indicating that someone had stopped to purchase some produce since JC had left. The police were called and the old pickup was quickly located along County Road 189, about a mile back off the highway. Not far from the vehicle, in a small clearing, was the body of J.C. Lavassa, lying face down on the ground, dead from a single gunshot wound to the back of the head. The keys to his truck were missing and his day's takings of approximately $100 were still in his shirt pocket. Police and locals were shocked. Who would kill this much-loved man and why? Authorities were still searching for those answers when Jean Lindsay provided them a month later. According to Jean, he was driving along Highway 155 with Patrick and Chris on the afternoon of October 5th when they spotted JC sitting in the passenger seat of his truck next to his produce stand. Thinking that this old pickup would make a good getaway car for their next bank robbery, Jean pulled over. And before JC had time to react, Patrick Horn and Christopher Wells were in the truck beside him and trying to drive it away. As JC begged them to let him out, the two men turned the vehicle onto County Road 189 as they struggled to get it out of first gear. About a mile up that road, they stopped, and JC seized his opportunity and made a run for it toward a cluster of trees not far off the roadside. Out of anger and frustration at not being able to drive the pickup, Chris Wells quickly caught up to the terrified 80-year-old and shot him at close range in the back of the head. The two men then went back to Jean's car and they fled the scene. All three men were charged with the two bank robberies and for the capital murder of J.C. Lavassa. They were sent to federal lockup to await trial where they would each be facing the death penalty. But from behind his cell walls, Patrick Horn was busy planning what he needed to get the death penalty taken off the table and to attempt to plea bargain his way out of federal prison and into the county system where conditions were more favourable. Then on the fourth anniversary of Chad's abduction and on what was Karen's 45th birthday, a plastic bag with a note attached was left on the front doorstep of Karen's brother Greg's house. The typed note read, quote, You only paid a part, so here is a part. End quote. And inside the bag was a child's skull. 
It was at this moment that Karen Choice knew her boy would not be coming home. In an attempt to prove the skull belonged to Chad, it was sent for DNA testing. But with DNA still in its infancy, the results were inconclusive. The skull was complete with teeth, but there are no dental records for Chad to compare them to. The skull was eventually sent to the anthropology department at the University of North Texas, where professors superimposed the most recent photos of Chad over the skull to see if everything lined up. Using this technique, they were able to confirm that the skull left on Greg's doorstep did indeed belong to his nephew Chad. Then a month before Patrick was due in court, a package addressed to him was intercepted by authorities. Inside was the femur bone of a child and a typed note that read, quote, You had a leg in this, so remember, never cut off the leg that holds up your destiny. End quote. When approached with this, Patrick suddenly began to act terrified, but managed to utter the name, Chad Choice, to detectives. It was the break in the case they needed, and the FBI were quick to conduct an interview with Pat to find out what information he had on this case. Patrick, however, offered very little information, saying that he was scared for his life to reveal more. He claimed that he had been forced to steal the keys from Chad's house and give them to local Colombian drug dealers who wanted to kidnap Chad to be held as ransom over his uncle's debt. It turned out that Patrick Horn was friends with Chad's older brother. He had been at the house the night the keys went missing and he was very familiar with the case. This went with the theory that police already had, that Chad's kidnapping was related to Greg's debts, but Patrick was known to tell tall tales and investigators didn't believe what he was saying. Wanting to sound more believable, Patrick eventually offered up the names of the three Colombians, Paco, Carlos and Junior. These names were familiar with the police, but when checking their whereabouts at the time Chad went missing, they all had solid alibis. Patrick, however, stuck to his story and claimed that he was in fear of his life. Eventually, he agreed to talk as long as the death penalty for J.C. Lavasse's murder was removed. He told authorities that he gave the stolen keys to Carlos, who then entered Chad's house in the pre-dawn hours and snatched him from his bed. After getting Chad into a vehicle that Paco and Junior had waiting nearby, the Colombian trio then went and picked up Patrick from his house. From there, they drove out to the desert where Patrick was made to watch as they shot the eight-year-old in the back of the head. Patrick went on to say that the following day, the three men returned to his house and ordered that he dig a hole and bury Chad right there in the backyard of his family home on Sunnyside Drive. On May 31, 1996, the day that Patrick Horn was being sentenced in federal court for his other offences, authorities began digging up the backyard to look for Chad. It didn't take long to unearth the shallow grave. Wrapped in a bloodstained blanket were the remains of eight-year-old Chad Choice, along with bullet casings, a bullet, and the keys stolen from near the back door of the Choice house. Refusing to sway from his Colombian mafia story, detectives located Pat's younger brother, Keithan, who at the time was incarcerated in an Athens prison. When asked if he had any information regarding the Chad Choice case, Keithan didn't hesitate in ratting on his older brother. He told authorities that in the fall of 1991, Pat had instructed him to dig a hole in their backyard, 
but it wasn't until Patrick had been arrested for the federal charges that he found out that Chad's body had been buried in that hole he had dug. Keithan confessed that it was he, at his brother's request, who dug up the skull, cleaned it with a toothbrush, then left it with the note on Greg's doorstep. Several months afterwards, Patrick had contacted him again, demanding that he return to the house once more, this time to recover Chad's hand, which was to be sent to him with a note that read, quote, You had a hand in this, so here is a hand. End quote. However, unable to identify the hand bones, he instead improvised with the femur bone. He told investigators that Patrick was trying to make it look like he was being threatened by the Colombians for talking. He wanted to use the information of Chad's murder as his plea bargaining tool without being implicated himself. Thankfully, his plan failed, and on March 31, 1997, Patrick Horn was indicted for the capital murder of Chad Choice, where he pleaded not guilty and was sent to trial in the District Court of Smith County. While Patrick's defence in court was that the Colombians kidnapped and killed Chad and his involvement was merely the result of duress, the prosecution introduced testimony from three of Pat's former cellmates, all of whom testified that Patrick had confessed to them that he was the sole person responsible for Chad's murder. He had perceived the family to be wealthy and his attempt to extort money was for his own drug uses. Also to testify was Pat's brother Keithan and Pat's former accomplice Christopher Wells, who told the courts that he had known about Pat's involvement in Chad's murder since it happened. On September 24, 1999, Patrick Horn was convicted of the capital murder of Chad Choice and was sentenced to death by lethal injection. His statements regarding the Colombian drug dealers have never been verified and no one else has ever been charged in Chad's case. Christopher Wells was sentenced in 1995 to 37 months in federal prison for bank robbery and 60 months for firearm offences. In 2001, he was transported to state prison to begin his life sentence for the capital murder of J.C. Lavassa. He is currently incarcerated at the Connolly Unit in South Texas and will be eligible for parole in 2034. J.C. Lavassa was laid to rest at Franklin Cemetery in Franklin, Texas, followed in 2002 by his daughter Linda, and then in 2009 by his beloved wife Annie. In the years following his conviction, Patrick Horn has raised several appeals and in 2005 the federal court eventually had his death sentence commuted to life imprisonment due to him only being 17 years old at the time of Chad's abduction and subsequent murder. In 2003, Chad's bones were finally released to his family for burial at the Evergreen Memorial Park Cemetery in Tyler, Texas and four years later his mother Karen Elaine Sterling Choice was laid to rest beside him having passed away on July 22, 2007, at the age of just 56. Chad House is now being run by Chad's sister. In 2005, investigators announced that Patrick Horn was the prime suspect in the 1992 abduction and possible murder of his neighbour, 42-year-old Christine Storeen Bird. Christine was last seen on May 27, 1992, at her house at 2405 Pine Burr Avenue, which backed onto Patrick Horn's family home. She left food on the stove cooking when she vanished and has not been seen or heard from since. 
It has been theorised that Christine had knowledge of Pat's involvement in Chad's disappearance, so he decided he needed to silence her. Christine is described as being African-American with black hair and brown eyes. She has pierced ears and weighed approximately 160 pounds at the time she went missing. Most of the websites that feature her as a missing and endangered person list her height at being between 5 foot 1 and 5 foot 3, but I found her details as a Smith County inmate for a 1981 theft offence and her height is listed as being 5 foot 8 inches tall, which is a massive discrepancy. At the time of her disappearance, Christine was wearing approximately $25,000 worth of distinctive jewellery including a diamond encrusted bracelet, two diamond rings and a diamond pin, and had on a yellow shirt and blue denim shorts. Christine, who sometimes goes by her middle name of Starine, was born on the 16th of July 1949, and if alive today, would be 71 years old. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week when we bring you another story picked fresh straight from the crime tree. All photos pertaining to this case will be up on our Instagram at the crime tree.